you know, we did some things that we had not done before. We went to, went to Kipu Falls. I've been here 10 years, never been to Kipu Falls, and just had a fabulous time. And we, uh, we did the hike. I'd done the hike before, but I took my family on it. We went through uh, all the way up to Loop Road at the bottom of Waialiali and hiked through the 1.1-mile one, 1 um, aqueduct tunnel that was there and came out the other side and went up to uh, another little area. It's just unbelievable. This place is gorgeous. And uh, we got to enjoy it this week, and so I want to... I want to tell you that we missed you, uh, but we certainly had a good time. And uh, I want to welcome those of you that are here for the first time. I've, I've met some of you that are, are, uh, are coming to visit for the first time and some that have come back to, uh, to visit. They've been away for a while, and uh, we're just so glad you're here. And for everyone else, we're just, like Bruce said, as he was kind of um, ending this time of worship, is that we're family. And uh, that's a, a really a, a, a treasure to have family and to be able to be a part of a work of God like this. And so I, I know that, uh, that I'm extremely grateful to be a part of it and to come alongside and to, um, to be partnering with you in the work that God has on this island. Um, I'm going to start a series this morning um, on heaven. And I've actually been asked repeatedly. I've been, I had friends asking me for months and months and months and actually almost a year to speak on heaven. So today we're going to start. And I'd like to begin by reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. And so if you'll turn there with me, we're going to read uh, from chapter 21, just the first five verses. And then we're going to spend some time this morning, really by way of introduction, talking about the misconceptions that we have about heaven. And uh, over the next five or so weeks, we're going to be talking about uh, the place of heaven, what we'll be doing, just a whole variety of things related to our eternal state. But let's begin by reading Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and he, God himself, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Father, we come to you this morning just so delighted to be here and so, um, so thankful to be born again, so thankful to be forgiven of our sins, so thankful to have such an abundant and rich and enjoyable journey of a life now. And God, so thankful that you have planned our full redemption. God, the redemption of the world, the redemption of creation. God, that one day all things will be completed and we will live with you forever. God, we're looking forward to it. And I pray, God, that you would take the message this morning and that you would bring it to life, Lord. I've done the study. I've done the homework. I've prayed. But, God, it, it, it's, it's you that brings life to a message. It's you through your spirit that touches our hearts. And so I'm asking and crying out with my brothers and sisters here this morning that you would meet us in a wonderful way and that you would open our eyes and that you would give us a glimpse of heaven. And so, Father, we pray these things and that it would be to your glory and to your praise, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. This sermon series is really birthed out of a, 
conversation that I've had with, uh, with a friend of ours that, um, that you guys know and we know if you've been in the church any length of time, and it's Rick Burrell. Rick and I have been friends for over 10 years, and uh, we like to motorcycle together, and we like to uh, mountain bike together, and we mountain bike fairly regularly. Uh, he's a neighbor of mine. And uh, we go on, on these rides up in the homesteads uh, fairly often, and on those rides we spend a lot of time talking and praying and worshiping God. It's just really very fulfilling and satisfying to both of us to do it. But one of the things that Rick talked to me about, about maybe almost a year ago, is he said, Bob, you know, uh, it would be so great if sometime you could teach on heaven and you could give a series on, on just what it's going to be like because he said, you know, the honest truth is, is that, uh, you know, I'm wanting to do all the right things and I'm, to the best of my ability, as God gives me the strength, I'm living for him and trying to guide my family in that way. But he said, sometimes I lose sight of where we're headed and what the goal is. And he said, if I could have a clearer picture of what that goal is, it would really help me a lot. And, and to be honest with you, he's been kind of bugging me about it for a while. And I talked to you about this, that I was going to do a, a series on it for, I, I think, a couple of months at least, if not three months. And so today I want to begin. But as I listened to Rick and we prayed about it, uh, it reminded me of a gal in 1952 named Florence Chaddock. Florence Chaddock was the first woman to swim from Catalina Island to, to the coast of California. And in 1952, she made her first attempt. And of course, she'd trained and she was an excellent swimmer. And, and uh, they had an escort boat and they, they, they set the date and the time and all. And so early in the morning, she uh, set foot off of Catalina to make her swim to the coast. And uh, unfortunately, as you guys know from California, if you visit there, sometimes these fog banks can roll in very unexpectedly and very quickly. And so this fog bank rolled in uh, just as, as Florence was uh, getting ready to swim, but she decided that she was going to go ahead anyway. Everyone was there. The news, news reporters were there. Uh, you know, her family was there. This whole thing had been prepared, and so she says, I can make it. So the swim is, is some 21 miles long, and she began the swim and was doing great. But after about 15 hours, she became really exhausted. It was very cold, and the fog hadn't lifted. In fact, it had gotten worse. It was so bad that she was having trouble seeing the escort boat that was just not very far from her. And uh, she became discouraged, and she, she just kept calling out to the escort, escort boat, I can't make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm, I'm too tired. I'm exhausted. And her mom said, honey, you're almost there. You're almost there. Well, she finally got in the boat, and she gave up her attempt. She was half a mile shy of the goal. She was 98% of the way to completing this record swim. And the next day, she held a press conference, um, and uh, all the reporters came around, and this is what she said. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And my intention over the next several weeks is to, is to clear away the fog from our lives and from our understanding of what heaven is. I want, by God's grace, you can pray for me, uh, in the next few weeks as I develop this sermon series, but I'd like you to pray for me because my intention and my heart is to, is to blow the fog away so that as you are working so diligently and running your race and swimming your course, so to speak, in the kingdom of God, that you are going to finish well because, friends, we are not that far away from completing the race. We are this close, and, and I'm speaking of prophecy, which I don't have time to talk about this morning, but prophetically, we are so close to the end. And, and at different times, because of the fog of life and the challenges and the trials and the difficulties and the disappointments, sometimes we can just be swimming out there and just saying, I can't see the shore. I, I, I don't see what the goal is, and I just feel like I just can't go any farther. 
And I'm here to tell you this morning that you are so close, but it's not good enough for me to simply be in the boat and saying, you're going to make it. What I want to do is that I want to clear the fog about what heaven is like. And so that's my intention over the next number of weeks. I want you to see the shores of God's celestial city and your eternal home. I want you to have a fuller understanding of what the Bible actually teaches about heaven. I want to inspire you to invest your life for eternal things. I want to encourage you, as the scripture says in in, uh, 1 John 3, that by virtue of this goal and this blessed hope that we have, that we would live lives that are holy and pure before God. I want you to be excited about sharing the gospel with your friends because you're going to be telling them not just about escaping the flames of hell, but you're actually going to be able to describe what heaven is going to be like. And I want you to look forward with anticipation to your resurrected body, to a resurrected life, on a resurrected and redeemed heaven and earth with a resurrected Savior. It's going to be glorious. Some of the things that we're going to talk about through this series is what's heaven going to be like? Who will be there? What will our bodies be like? And what will we be capable of? What will we remember from our past life? What will we be doing during all those years of eternity? What will life be like? What will our living conditions be like? What kind of relationships are we going to have with each other? Are we going to remember our relationships? Will we have our own names? Will we have bodies that are somewhat like they are today? What our environment will be like we'll be talking about. Are there going to be animals there? What is it going to be like to reign and rule with Christ? And what will that rule and reign consist of? There's so many things that the Bible talks about heaven. It it relates so much information to us. And I have to be honest with you right out of the gate that As I studied this, I became almost embarrassed at how little I knew about heaven. And heaven isn't talked about much. In fact, probably very few of you have ever heard a message strictly on the eternal state. A lot of us have heard messages on eschatology and on the the, the beast and the antichrist and the seven seals and the seven bold judgments and, and, uh, you know, the sequence of events and the end times and the prophetic fulfillment of Christ and all these things driving forward to the end. But it's like once we get to the point of the eternal state, the information just kind of stops and nobody talks much about it. And as I've done the research and study over the last six months or so, it's been daunting It's been overwhelming how much information is in the Bible about heaven that I never recognized before and I never really saw. And so I want to give you a little bit of a clue about what heaven is like. And and I'm giving you a preview of the next couple of weeks. But heaven is so much different than what you're imagining. Heaven is going to be God's redeemed people restored with glorified bodies on this earth that he is going to restore and rejuvenate, and I'm going to be talking about this. I know a lot of this stuff is going to sound crazy to some of you. sounded crazy to me. But God is going to restore and redeem this earth and this universe, and he is going to bring us back to a place that he intended in the beginning when he created it and called it all good. And so what heaven is going to be like in our final state is going to be much more of what this life is like except without the sin except without the heartache, except without the the, the discouraging times, without any fault, without any problem, it's going to be glorious. We'll have absolutely no physical limitations. That, you know, I'm going to, I'm interrupting myself right now because I'm getting excited about it, just talking about it. But because so much of this stuff has been brewing in my head for so long. But we have such a glorious future. 
And it is going to be such an exciting life. It's going to be such a wonderful life, but it's so different than what we, most of us, have been expecting. Let me talk about some of the misconceptions that we've had about heaven, the content of our misconceptions. We think about sitting on clouds with harps and wearing robes and and just kind of hanging around, you know, forever. I mean, isn't it true? Every time you see a cartoon in the newspaper or in some comic strip, they have heaven. You got little puffy clouds and you got the, these big gates and Peter's at the, at the door, right? I mean, that's, that's about as much information as we've got about heaven. Or we've got little fat cherubs, you know, floating around. Uh, we're not quite sure what they do or what they're for or if they even exist, these little caricatures of, of real angels. But we've turned them in these little fat chubby babies, you know, and, uh, and we kind of think of things like that. The other thing that we think of that's probably a little bit more biblical, certainly more biblical, is we think about worshiping God for all of eternity. And we get that from some very solid passages of Scripture, namely Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Now in those chapters, they talk about the four living creatures. Does this ring a bell? The 24 elders, the four living creatures fall down and worship before the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of time and from the earth. And, and they fall down, and then the 24 elders fall down, and they cast their crowns before the Lamb. And they're worshiping and saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And they, they're just these glorious, uh, I can't wait to sing it. I don't know what the tune is, but I can't wait to be there and to be a part of it. And, and so we think of that as our role in heaven for all eternity. And I'm going to talk about that because, quite frankly, uh, that doesn't necessarily completely excite everyone singing for all eternity. Some of us just can't sing very well. And, and we don't even really like to sing because of that. And we're a little timid and we think to ourselves, are we going to really get into this? Uh, you know, it's one thing to sing a half an hour, uh, uh, you know, set of songs at, at worship on Sunday morning. And we love it. But to sing forever and ever and ever. And even myself, I've sometimes conceived of heaven as being in that, that uh, presence of God at the throne room of God. And the, the four living creatures go down. And then the 24 elders go down. And then the host of heaven go down. And okay, it's our turn. So, you know, we're all down on our face, you know, worshiping God. And then we get back up again. And then the four living creatures go down again and it's just like dominoes and we're doing that for all eternity and I'm thinking you know I really love worship but for all eternity that that's what we're going to be doing and so some of our concept of heaven and it's appropriate because part of what we'll be doing is worshiping God but quite frankly a lot of us are kind of a little struggling with that concept of heaven and whether that's going to be fulfilling or not well, some others have suggested that we're going to be doing other things, like recounting the experiences of past saints. You know, we're going to get to have conversations with all of these biblical giants, you know, Moses and Jacob and Caleb and David and Daniel, and on it goes, and we're going to be able to ask them questions, you know, like, David, what was it like to slay Goliath? And, you know, some of the guys especially, you know, we're into battles and things. You know, we want to sit down. Okay, tell us what the battle was like. You know, can we recreate it? Can you, can you give us a video of what it was like, you know, when you, when you wiped out the Amalekites? Or, you know, we want to see when God actually did it, when they simply prayed like Jehoshaphat. And then I have questions like for Adam and Eve. It's like, what were you thinking, you know? I, so we're going to get to have all these conversations. And then we're going to have to have conversations with, with the saints since the time of the New Testament like Polycarp, who was one of the first martyrs of the church. 
And I, and I think about uh, Adoniram Judson and some of the, William Carey, these great men and women of God who's, who serve the Lord, and we're going to get to have conversations with them. But, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well, you can only talk about these things so much. You know, eternity is eternity after all. And is that it? Is that what we're going to be doing? We're worshiping, and then in between the breaks and the sets, we're going to have conversations and interview people for eternity? Well, other people have maybe suggested that there's more, that we'll be peppering God with questions. We're going to have a whole lot of why questions that we're going to get to ask God because, after all, we've got questions. There are things that we don't understand about this life, like why did you make mosquitoes? And, and why is the pit in the avocado so big? It could have been a lot smaller, more fruit. Uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do we lose our socks in the dryer and where do they go? And, and why did JFK have to die and who really did kill him? You know, we have questions like that. Then we might have theological questions like, can you please explain the Trinity to us? I mean, we tried to illustrate it a hundred different ways, but none of them quite fit. Can you clue us in? And then there are theological issues that, that uh, different groups of Christians still don't agree on today. You know, we agree on all the fundamentals of what it means to be saved and how to have a relationship with God, but, you know, we've got these deep questions that we need you to answer to tell us who was right, you know, and which translation of the English Bible was really the best and the most accurate and things of that nature. And, of course, you know, the, the classic is, okay, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons or not, you know? I mean, we want to know those kinds of things. But even after we ask all these questions, we still have eternity in front of us after all those questions are answered. And so the question is, is that going to be it? I think a lot of people are somewhat concerned about heaven because there's a fear that we're going to be living this kind of disconnected life from the past, that we won't know anybody, that we won't remember anything, that we're, going to, we're not going to have our, our marriage partner. We're not sure what our relationship with our kids will be. And there's a part of us especially I think for women because women are much more relational than men in general, but there's a part of all of us that feels like, man, that's going to be a little bit of a bummer, you know, to, to get to heaven and lose all of that. Well, one, one thing I can tell you, you're not going to lose anything, that all those things are based on mis misperceptions of what the scripture teaches. You're going to know, you're going to bring your entire past with you, not the bad things, but you're going to be bringing memories, you're going to be bringing recollections, we're going to be in heaven, it's going to be like, we're just going to be talking about the glory of God, that's a part of what we'll be doing, and the work that he's done, not in just a handful of saints, but in the entire population of the kingdom of God, we'll be glorifying God and having these remarkable times of sharing what God has done in our life. I think another misconception that we have is that we anticipate heaven as an endless, monotonous, unfulfilling future. And there's this fear that, you know, man, I just love life here. You know, life is not easy. We all know that. We all go through terrible times of struggle. Some of you may be struggling today. But generally, in the, in the broader picture of life, we have a lot to be thankful for. And when we, when we think about anticipating heaven, you know, just sitting on a cloud and kind of looking at each other and flapping our wings, you know, and, you know, we've got these very obscure and... and skewed and distorted views of what heaven is like, we kind of go, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I am all that excited about getting there yet. And, uh, and I'm not sure that I really am that thrilled about the eternal state. It reminds me of John Eldridge who has written a book called The Journey of Desire. And this is what he says in relationship to this issue of, of tedium and boredom in heaven. Nearly every Christian I've ever spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We've settled on an image of the never-ending sing-along in the sky with one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our hearts sink 
forever and ever? That's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and we feel guilty that we're not more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find life in what we can here. I've had a number of conversations with people over the years because I'm a pastor. I get a question, question about all kinds of things. And one of the questions that I've been asked on occasion is, is you know, what's heaven going to be like? And I'll never forget a conversation that I had uh, quite a few years ago in New York. And uh, this guy was just, he's very direct, he's very practical, he's very um, intuitive, and he's, he's a real thinker. And so he wasn't satisfied with little pat answers of we're going to be worshiping God forever. And he says, well, wait a second, you mean for like millions and millions and tens of millions, unending millions of years, we're going to be worshiping God? And I was like, um, well, that's what the Bible teaches. And he said, you mean we're not going to get any breaks? There's no, you know, time to just mess around and have some fun? I mean, can we do anything besides worship God? And I was like, well, uh, that's what we're going to be doing is worshiping God. And I, and I began to realize that as he was saying these things, I thought, that doesn't sound very exciting to me either, but I'm a pastor, so I had to make it sound exciting. So I tried to make the worship sound exciting, and I, and I basically, my theory was at the time, is that God is going to transform us in such a way, along with our glorified bodies, that we are going to be so on to worship, we'll never want to stop worshiping. That was my solution to the dilemma. Well, I don't think that's the correct biblical answer anymore. And we'll be talking about that in the weeks to come. But, but this anticipation that it's going to be this endless, boring tedium of just doing the same thing over and over and just being good up there all the time and, you know, I, nothing wrong with being good. But just that sense of, you know, that we're just going to be endlessly doing the same thing over and over and over and all the things that give us satisfaction now like being with friends and family and loved ones and going to the beach, which I'm hoping to do this afternoon and go surfing and, um, and, and go motorcycle riding or to, to uh, create or to paint or to go on trips or to enjoy uh, 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 time with, you know, relatives, all these things that give us a sense of meaning and rhythm to life. I believe are going to be a part of the kingdom of heaven too. And I'm going to back everything up with scripture. And right out of the gate, I want to encourage you that if you hear me saying anything that doesn't square with scripture, I expect you to come up to me and challenge me on it. Uh, we're going to be Bereans. We're going to be on a discovery, an adventure together over the next month and a half or so as we look at what the Bible really says about heaven. What are the sources of our misconception? Well, the number one source of our misconception is really the world. And it has to do with history and culture. Every culture, every people group on the planet has a God-implanted, God-given thrill and desire and, 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 and a, a sense of the eternal, a sense of the afterlife. And so no matter what culture you talk about, they all have some sort of an eternal state perspective. If you consider the, the uh, ancient Egyptians, they thought heaven was somewhere in the darkest part of the, of the universe, in the heavens, where there are no stars. The Australian Aborigines thought it was on the western horizon. The Finns thought it was on the eastern horizon. Uh, we've got uh, the Hindus that think it's on, on, on the mountain of Tibet, and then finally it's in this state of nirvana. Uh, we've got the Mexicans and Peruvians and Eskimos that think it's either on the moon or on the sun. But every culture has these, these, uh, these stories and these uh, traditions of belief about the fact that there is going to be an, an eternal state. But the way that these got corrupted is revealed to us in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, where it says that although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so they came up with all of these bizarre things that were distortions and perversions 
of the biblical description of the eternal state. And so there's a lot of confusion that enters our world and even our own thinking because of the cultures that many of us have come from and that we've been exposed to. And then certainly there are the false religions and philosophies. We've got a lot of false theistic religions, theistic meanings God-centered, like Islam and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, who all have a distorted and perverted view of the eternal state. The Eastern religions, um, like Hinduism and Buddhism, Hinduism in particular, uh, believes in, in a place called uh, Moksha or Nirvana. And in the meantime, you have to go through these reincarnations over and over and over uh, to finally hope that you're going to get it right someday. And when you finally get it right, your little drop of a life is going to be absorbed into the great humanity of ocean uh, life and, and that you'll become nothing. And that's the arrival of, of, uh, of heaven. That's the eternal state. And then there are cults like Christian science that believes heaven is simply a state of mind and that uh, people experience their own heaven or, or hell on earth depending on the choices that they make in life. And so all of these things enter into the mix of what the population, in particular of the United States, and sometimes even the church, their perspective on what heaven will be like. We also have the media that, um, that has done a great disservice to what heaven will be like. And uh, we've got movies like Oh God with George Burns. You guys remember that movie? I mean, and John Denver, what a goofy movie. You know, it's like I'm dating myself, but, but that was like one of the first movies about heaven and the eternal state. And, and the whole point of the movie was is that uh, heaven isn't anything like what you think. It's just kind of, you know, George Burns is up there smoking a stogie, you know, and, and John Denver's coming to him and saying, oh God, you know, is it really true what the Bible says about this? And George, <laughs> you know, hey, that's just an old fable. You know, and we get all of these perceptions from George Burns that God is just this, happy old drunkard, you know, you know, stogie smoking man in the sky that he's got a real sense of humor and mankind has completely misunderstood him and sin isn't really that big a deal and uh, you're all going to make it to heaven, which really brings us to uh, even things like uh, um, life after death experiences where people uh, have these near-death experiences and they die on the operating table and they describe it, you know, I was going down this long tunnel, I saw a light at the end and there was, I just felt this drawing to go down. It looked so beautiful and so attractive and so I made my way down and, and as I got there, I met this beautiful being often described as Jesus Christ or an angel and what does that, that being say? Well, the being almost always says is that, uh, that it's not anything to fear to die that sin isn't a problem, there's no hell to worry about, and basically every religion is going to lead to eternal life. And so all of a sudden they're snatched back, they're told your time isn't yet come, so go back, and they come back so disappointed that they have to leave, you know, that angelic presence, and they come back and their message to everyone is, God is love, you know, everyone's going to make it, we don't have to fear death, it's all good, and you're going to just be completely blessed. Well, the Bible tells us exactly the source of that kind of information, and it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, because Satan is described as an angel of light, and only demonic forces would teach directly against what the Scripture teaches as it relates to heaven and hell, because the Bible clearly says the only people that will be in heaven will be those that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those that have confessed their sin, those that have asked Christ to forgive their sins, those that have been reconciled to Christ, to be made right in their relationship by saying, I'm wrong, you're right, please forgive me, I want to have new life. Those are the only people that will be in the kingdom of heaven. And yet, 
the world and the media is constantly barraging us with information to the contrary. You know, I was, um, I woke up in the night last night, uh, like four o'clock, and, um, and I couldn't sleep. I prayed for a while, and I, I just turned on the radio, and I, I didn't even have any idea what was on. I just thought I'd get some music or something. It was Art Bell. It was actually his show. I know you're all avid listeners of Art Bell. Okay, so Art Bell has got this program on. It's not actually him, but somebody else. And they have this woman on who's, a, who's an angelic psychic. And she helps people figure out what these angels and these visions and these dreams and these visitations really mean. And so she's interpreting all these for these call-in callers and everything. And I thought, this is exactly what our culture is exposed to on a fairly regular basis about what heaven is like. And it is so wrong and it is designed by the enemy to derail people from eternal life. Well, I wish we could blame it all on the media uh, and on history and false religions, but the church itself is involved as well. Very interestingly, um, as I began to do my research and study, and I've got a lot of commentaries and books that I was researching, and as I began to look through these commentaries, I found something that Randy Alcorn, who's wrote, written a book called Heaven, found as well, and that's that, that these books, these, these volumes, I mean, they're like five or six books in some of these sets. Some of them are like 15, 20 volumes in the, in the set, and it's all on theology. Theology is just basically the study of God. They study, you know, sin. They study, um, you know, the nature of Christ, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, uh, you know, justification, sanctification, salvation, the cross, uh, the resurrection. They've got all of these things in depth, hundreds and hundreds of pages. And when it comes to eschatology, the end times, all the prophetic work of God and everything, they'll have like, you know, 50, 60, 70 pages. But when it comes to heaven, you know how many pages they've got? Like none in many commentaries. John Calvin's huge institute that he's written is just enormous. He never even wrote one word on heaven. In fact, he never even wrote a commentary or any words directly related to the book of Revelation itself at all. I went through and, and uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, who wrote an in-depth two-volume set on the nature and destiny of man, had nothing to say about heaven. William Shedd's three-volume dogmatic theology, uh, 87 pages on eternal punishment, only two on heaven. In his 900-page uh, theology, Martin Lloyd-Jones has two pages on the new earth. Louis Burkhardt, um, his systematic theology, he's got 38 pages on creation, 40 pages on baptism and communion, and he only has two pages on hell and one page on the eternal state. Now, I was talking to some people about this yesterday after the sermon, and I'm just speculating, but I believe that the reason this has occurred is that most theology historically or the study of God, the, the kind of systematizing of the word of God so that we've got a very clear statement of faith, so to speak, of what we believe as a church, those statements of faith were the result of coming against false teaching in the early church. So they had a false teaching about Jesus. They said somebody would get up and say Jesus wasn't really God. Well, then they developed a whole theology explaining why he was God, why he was God in the flesh, and, uh, and, and the, the biblical proof of that, as well as other proofs. And so there would be this extensive effort by the church leaders to, to gather together and to search the scriptures to bring evidence that would refute the false teaching. But one of the topics that rarely comes up is heaven. I don't ever hear people arguing about heaven. I've never seen a church split over what the eternal state will be. I've never heard people from different denominations say, you're wrong, and they say, no, you're wrong, and because, you know, one guy thinks they're cherubs and the other guy doesn't, you know? We don't argue about things like that because for some reason it's not that important to us. Now, that brings me to the question is why don't, why isn't it more important to us? Well, here's my speculation. In the early church, to follow Christ 
meant the loss of your house, your job, your family, and often your life. Now, when life is that precarious and that volatile because of your love for God, you're going to be loosened up from your passion for the temporal things of the world. And that's exactly what happened in the New Testament church. In the book of Hebrews, it says they, they, con they considered it a glory to live for the eternal kingdom of God. And so they forsook this kingdom, this world, and they were living for the kingdom to come. But in our culture over the last 200 years, which is about the time that people stopped talking about heaven because in the early church and all the way up through the 1600s, 1700s, people talked about the eternal kingdom a lot. But in the last 200 years, they haven't. And I speculate that part of the reason is, is that we are living such a comfortable life now and it's such a pain-free existence to be a believer for the most part in the United States that we're not anxiously looking forward to the kingdom of God in the eternal state because we're enjoying this life so much. Are you following me? And the result is, is that we don't do much thinking about heaven and we're not that concerned about heaven and we're not clinging to heaven. We're not looking to that shoreline and waiting for the fog to clear and thinking, I can make it, I can make it, I can make it because quite frankly, we're so busy, busy, busy with our lives being comfortable and happy and content and pleasured now that we have very little hunger or appetite for the things of the eternal kingdom. The result is, is that there's a lack of biblical teaching on heaven in the church. And, uh, and I have, I'm guilty of this as well. I've been a pastor 25 years and I've never, I've never taught a series on heaven until now. How can that be when it's our final destiny, when it's our goal? when it's everything that God has planned for us is the redemption of all things, the reconciling of all things into that final state of eternity in heaven. Well, the Bible says that we're to be a people that study to show ourselves approved, workmen who are not ashamed but accurately handle the word of truth. And over these next few weeks, we're going to become more familiar. We're going to be better workmen when it comes to our knowledge of the eternal state and the kingdom of God. I think one of the final things that has prompted this misconception is Satan himself. His primary objective ever since he was evicted from heaven was to undermine God's eternal plan to restore all things. He wanted to damage the redeeming work of God by upending and undermining the ministry of Christ on the cross. But now that that's happened, his attention is given to the sons of men, the, the sons and daughters of God, those of us that have come to Christ, he, his intention is to keep us from ever hearing the gospel. That's the whole parable about the sower and, and, and the bird snatching the seed away even before it's planted in their heart. That's Satan, representing Satan. And that's what Satan does. He's the father of lies. He's the deceiver of the world. He's the one that leads the entire world astray. And interestingly, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5 and 6, it describes the beast who is this ambassador, this appointee of Satan himself, along with the Antichrist, to do certain things. It was in this beast's authority for, for three and a half years to open his mouth, to blaspheme God, and then listen carefully, and to slander God's name and to slander God's dwelling place, which of course is heaven, and to slander those who live in heaven. To slander is to tell lies, to, to, to bring a deceiving, inaccurate word. And that's Satan's attempt from the very beginning is to disrupt man's kind, renewed and restored relationship with God. And by the way, that's Satan's plan for your life too. Even as you're a believer, he still wants to interrupt and disrupt and intervene so that you don't fully believe God 
and that you don't take God's word for the truth and that you give yourselves to temporal things and that you forsake the eternal things of God, that the life becomes so foggy for you that you are going to get out of the boat, out of the race, so to speak, and just say, I can't do it anymore. I got no motivation. I can't, I'm not anticipating anything good coming out of this. Satan wants to steal, destroy, and to kill the work of God. And of course, he wants to do that to anything that God plans to touch, to reconcile, and to redeem. His purpose from the beginning after his fall in Isaiah 14 was to usurp the authority and the glory of God. He wants to thwart God's plan of redemption, and he wants to blockade the way to heaven. I'm reminded of the Pharisees that Jesus confronted in Matthew 23, and he says, you guys, you hypocrites. He says, you won't even go in yourself, but at the very least, let other people go in. I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you won't even let that happen. You blockade the way you yourself won't go in, and you won't let anyone else come in either. And that's a perfect description of the Pharisee's father, which was, according to Jesus, Satan. Satan's plan is to deter salvation. He wants to tempt us to doubt and disobey God. He wants to steal away the good seed. He wants to kill and destroy. And he certainly wants to discourage service and evangelism. One of the, one of the premier ways that he does that is to take away any sense of joy that we have in investing in the eternal kingdom. Because a lot of us don't even really understand what the rewards will be in the kingdom of God. And we just think it's all just going to be even Stephen up there. And we think everybody's just going to get the same thing, so why bother working? It's almost like communism. That's our view of, of heaven, is that it's socialistic up there. And so what, why bother? Why bother, you know, I'm just going to enjoy myself and work hard and do, build my house and do my things and, you know, make a happy life for myself. But that's one of the lies of the enemy. And we'll be talking about that in the weeks to come, the reward that awaits those who faithfully serve God and the wisdom of the man or woman who forsakes things in this world. I'm not talking about giving up on life and going living at Anini Beach in a tent or anything like that. But I'm saying that there's a, there's a hold on our heart that we need to release and that Satan has tempted us into and he causes us to invest more and more and more energy and effort into things that don't last. Meanwhile, we have less and less time for the things that have eternal nature. And I think the final thing that Satan wants to do in this process is depress godly anticipation of heaven. He wants to depress and suppress any sense of anticipation in the kingdom to come. The interesting thing with believers is that he doesn't have to convince us that heaven doesn't exist. He only has to convince us that it's going to be boring and monotonous and uninteresting. That's all he has to do. And if he can get us to believe that, then he can get us to get in the boat and quit. Some of the consequences of our misconception that I'll, I'll list here briefly. The first one is an undeveloped understanding of heaven and, and being okay with that. You know, kind of just kind of throwing our arms up and say, well, we can't really know that much. All I know is it's going to be good and so what? Let me read to you two quotes from two enormously powerful, influential saints from the past. I'm not in agreement with any of these quotes, but I have the utmost respect for these two men and I am a midget. I am, I am nothing compared to these guys. And yet, listen to their words when it comes to their view of heaven. This is Richard Baxter, one of the great Puritans of the faith. He says in a poem, My knowledge of that life is small. The eye of faith is dim. But it's enough that Christ knows all, and I shall be with him. Are you picking up what he's saying? 
In essence, he's saying, I don't know very much about the kingdom to come. All I know is Jesus is there and that's enough for me. Well, that's a wonderful truth and it is true, but it stops short of what God wants us to know. God has revealed all these things to us. It's been revealed by his spirit and we throw up our hands and says, well, we can't know about it. Well, the only reason we don't know about it is that we haven't had our eyes open and we haven't studied to find out what it says and I'm guilty too. Here's another quote by J.I. Uh, Packer, a great uh, reformed theologian in a book called Your Father Loves You. He says, we know very little about heaven, but I once heard a theologian describe it as an unknown region with a well-known inhabitant and there is not a better way to think of it than that. Again, kind of just throwing our arms up and saying, we can't know much. We know Jesus is going to be there, and that's enough for me. And uh, the truth is, is that there is truth to it. But it stops so far short of what God has given us. And if God has given us more information, why wouldn't we want to know more information? There's nothing noble about saying, I'm ignorant about what the Bible says about it, and I'm happy to be ignorant because all I need to know is that Jesus is there. Because that doesn't lift the fog. That doesn't lift the fog so that we can see the shoreline, so that we can see the celestial kingdom, so that we can be motivated, so that we can see what's coming. And I want to lift the fog. And I have to tell you, over the last six months or so as I've been studying, I mean, I'm sure there's still fog there. I've got some questions that I haven't had answers for yet, and I'm studying to find them. But so much of the fog has been lifted that I'm looking around and I'm, you know, I, I, and again, I'm, I'm kind of giving away my sermon for next week, but I'm looking around on Kauai and I'm, I'm thinking, boy, it's not any surprise that we love this place. It's not any surprise that people all over the world love to come and visit this place. Why do they come here? Why, what is it about Kauai that people love? I believe that there's a God-implanted vision and, and understanding, though it's so obscure, it's like a shadow, it's, it's a dark mirror, and yet there's something about this island that reminds us eternally of something that we're looking forward to and have never been there yet. And as I look around this island and I see what God is going to do and I realize from the scripture our activity and our, our fulfillment and our joy, because heaven, I'm going to give you a clue, heaven is going to be an awful lot like our world except without any problems and with glorious bodies and without limitation and with purity and holiness and with the kingdom of heaven being planted in Jerusalem and we're going to be living there and yet we're going to have access and rulership and we're going to be reigning over not just the globe but over the universe. I thought to myself so many times as I thought about the eternal heavens, what, you know, why did God bother making galaxies that man will never see? And my answer was always, well, because uh, to pleasure himself. It, aren't, isn't that the same answer you got? It's like, well, we'll never see it. Nobody's ever going to see it. But God sees it and that's, he just made it for himself. I don't believe that anymore. I do believe that God gives God pleasure because he said so in the opening chapter of Genesis. But I think the reason that they're there is that God designed us to be reigning and ruling over even the galaxies and that the time will come when we're going to have unlimited potential, not based on any kind of a thought pattern or meditation, but it's going to be what God has given us in these new, newly glorified bodies. And we're going to be a part of it. And it's going to be so interesting and fascinating. And we're going to be so fulfilled. And we're going to be working and planning and strategizing. We're going to have technology. We're going to take many of the, the things and the knowledge that we have into from this life into the kingdom to come, but without any sin. You're going to have so much joy. It's going to be everything you ever dreamed of on like a vacation, except it's going to be eternal. And you're going to have fulfillment that you never imagined possible because this world, especially for the men here, can never fulfill you through work and yet you were designed to work. 
You were made to work alongside of God. You were made to be a part of this eternal kingdom. And God, in the ultimate fulfillment, is finally going to bring us home to the place where it all fits and makes sense. And you're going to be there. And I'm going to be there. I'm get, I get pretty excited about it. It's going to happen a lot. But... We have to give up these distorted views of heaven. We've got to be willing to venture into a better understanding of this kingdom to come. The last thing I'll mention as far as a consequence of our misconception is that we have an unappealing view of heaven. It's uninviting. It's unattractive. It's quite frankly, especially for most men that I know, it's kind of like, is that it? Is, is, that, the, is that what we're looking forward to? And men are just wired to accomplish and to achieve and to succeed and to think about not being able to do anything. You put a lot of these guys in this room on vacation for two weeks and they start climbing the walls after a while. It's like, I want to do something. We have people that come on vacation from the mainland and after three days, they're calling up on the phone. Anything you can do up, anything I can do up there? My wife just wants to sit around and read and sit at the beach and she's enjoying herself, but I'm climbing the walls. I needed to be active, you know? And men, I want to tell you that you talk about active, wait till we get to the kingdom of God and yet you'll never be tired, you'll never be frustrated, you're never going to hit yourself with a hammer. <laughs> That's one of the questions I want to ask God, by the way, when I get to heaven is that, you know, Jesus, did he have to measure twice and cut once or did he just measure and then cut, you know? <laughs> but we have this unappealing view of the kingdom of God and the result is, is that we have a low drive for eternal things. It just kind of sucks the wind out of us and the desire. And yet in Colossians chapter 3, it says that in view of what God has done, because you have been raised with Christ, set your minds and your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And these words are so true and yet they seem so vacuous of, of meaning to a lot of people because to set our eyes on the kingdom to come when we don't even know what it looks like is difficult to do. And so the temptation is, is that I don't understand heaven, but I do understand the earth and I feel marginally fulfilled here. But if I just work a little harder and spend a little more time at it and gather a little bit more and succeed a little bit more, then maybe I can achieve some sense of lasting fulfillment. And so it really results in a low drive for the eternal things of the kingdom. And then the flip side of that is it results in a high drive for temporal things. And that's why Jesus in Matthew 6 says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is saying these things because our natural tendency is to have a low drive for the eternal things and a high drive for the temporal things. And so God is saying, I've given you so much information. Everything is driving forward not just to eschatology but to the eternal state. Everything is driving forward, not to the last battle of Armageddon and, and Satan being thrown into the uh, lake of fire, but it's driving forward to the reconciling of all things through Jesus Christ. It's driving forward to the redemption of all things, including your body and including heaven and earth and including God's original plan. Let me share something with you. Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit will not cede anything to Satan. Not one inch of territory, not one part of his plan will be given up. All of it will be restored. All of it will, will, will be renewed and we are going to be there. And my friends, we are this close. 
We are inches away. We are 98% of the way there or more. We are that close, but unless the fog lifts, the temptation will be to get in the boat and to call it quits, to scale back, to, to lift our efforts, and to say, you know what? I did the, I've served long enough. I've tried hard enough. I've been in ministry long enough. Now it's time for other people to step in. So we get out of the boat and then throw someone else in the water, and they're still in a fog too. Here's the result. And this is the last and final consequence that I'm going to mention, is that we have a neglect of the Great Commission. We've neglected the Great Commission. Why? Well, it's really hard to get motivated to try to drum up some excitement about a kingdom of God that's so foggy that you're not even sure you want to go there. And to try to convince someone else that they should go there when you don't even get excited about it when you think about it and you have confusing thoughts about what it means, it really really drives down and eliminates our passion for the lost. And so the best we can muster up is we don't want them to burn in hell, so get saved. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life, and most of the time we're talking about now, aren't we? But very little do we talk about the eternal kingdom and the wonderful plan that God has in the future. And I'm praying in the, in the weeks to come that God, God is going to lift the fog. I was thinking about this, and I, often we have people... Um, come to the island, they want to move here. And many of you have moved here. Uh, quite a number of you have moved here just because of what God is doing in this fellowship and you want to be a part of it. And I, I'm just blown away by that and so excited to see God's hand on this fellowship. But when people come over here, they want information. They don't, you know, they, they get on the phone with me. We write emails for sometimes years and I correspond with a lot of people who are planning on moving or thinking about it, feel God's call on their life. And they don't just write me back and say, we're thinking about coming. And I write back and I say, let, let me know whatever you need to know. They never write back and they say, well, we just trust you. We'll get there and you can show us around. We don't need to know anything. No, they want to know everything. Can you send me maps? Can you send me information? You got any websites? You know, I got on the website on Calvary Chapel's webpage and I saw all that stuff about Kauai that was so helpful. And what about this? And how do I get licensed for that? And what's the job market like? And what's the housing market like? And what are the, what are the schools like for my kids? And what do you guys do in your free time? And what they are asking for is information so they can look forward to it with anticipation and with knowledge. They want to lift the fog away. When you guys go on vacation somewhere, especially now with internet access, very few of you just say, no, I don't really care. Let's just get on the plane. We'll see what happens. No, I mean, you're on the internet looking at the hotel room, what the bed looks like and what kind of bed it is. And you're looking at the, the accommodations and, and you are looking at the, the activities that you're going to go on. And you, you want to see, the, you know, you're, you're doing the, the 360 view of the room, you know, and you want to know <clears throat> how much more should we as believers discover what the Bible says about our eternal destiny. Not a vacation, not a, not a geographical move, but about our eternal destiny. And so over the weeks to come, we're going to be studying it. And I think it's going to be glorious. I, I've been, it's changed my life. It's changed my perspective. It changes the way that I look at people, the way I look at the world, the way I look at life. It is actually, as I've studied, it's, it's freed me. It's released me. I feel freer and freer and freer of the bonds of this world through the study that I've done. And it's my prayer in the weeks to come that God is going to do the same in your life. And he's going to help us fix our eyes on the things to come, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that as that great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us watches and observes as a great audience in the kingdom of heaven and they're cheering us on and they're saying, don't get out, don't get in the boat. You're almost there. You're almost at the shore. 
the fog is there, but we're going to try to lift the fog. But even if there's some sense of, of, of weariness or, or trial or difficulty in the process, I want to encourage you saints that we're almost home. Don't give up. Don't flag. Don't allow the enemy to lie to you. And most certainly, in no way, give up the reward that's waiting you for those who faithfully serve God and his kingdom. It's a walk of faith, but there is a great deal of information here. I want to encourage you in the next few weeks to bring some friends because even unbelievers, even people that, that don't necessarily believe everything that you believe want to know about the eternal state. Bring them. They'll hear the word of God. They'll hear what the Bible says about the eternal state. And I, I just uh, want to say in closing that we have a great future and it so far surpasses anything that we've had in this life. It's a thousand times, it's 10,000 times over better than the best of what you've ever had here. And it's waiting for you. God, Jesus says, is preparing a place for you. And he's going to bring you home. And very soon, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, is going to reign and rule for all eternity. And everything will be made right. And his original attempt his original intent that he said in the book of Genesis repeatedly, it is good, will finally come to its full expression. And you're going to be there if you believe in Jesus. And I'm going to be there. And it's going to be glorious. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. And Lord, I, uh, I just can't say thank you enough. I almost feel a bit of embarrassment that all these years I've understood so little myself and kind of shrugged my shoulders with others and said, I don't really know very much, but I just know it's going to be great. And yet, Lord, in all things, your timing is perfect. And I believe that there's a wave of interest in spiritual things and of the eternal state that's going to take place and is already taking place across the globe. And this is your timing, preparing your church for the final push, for the final leg, for the final lap that you have us running. And I pray that as these men and women leave this morning, that they would have a heart to know you that if there's any here that don't know Christ as their Savior, that today would be the day and they say, I want to be a part of that. I'm willing to confess my sin. I'm willing to make things right with God. And for those of us that have maybe lost our way and have really considered getting in the boat or maybe already gotten in the boat, it's not too late for us to put our swimsuits back on and dive in and to finish the race. And so, Lord, I pray that every man and every woman and every young person here, including myself, that we would finish well and that we would hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master's happiness. We praise you and we honor you and we can hardly wait for what you have ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.